Hi there, this is Rhiannon Hardingham from R8 Free Productive Health. Histamine and estrogen have an intimate relationship physiologically, which is often responsible for a raft of seemingly unrelated symptoms, from hives and migraines to anxiety and insomnia. And many common and clinically challenging patient presentations have histaminosis as a complicating factor, including PMS and PMDD. Join me for Biocuticals Clinical Mastery, Histaminosis and Estrogen, Breaking the Cycle, on September 14th and 21st. Over two online sessions, I'll lead you through the key clinical steps involved in identifying, assessing and managing female patients with histaminosis. Go to biocuticals.com.au to reserve your place today. I'm really excited about this presentation. I know a lot of you are really interested in this topic and I really look forward to seeing you there. This is FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Damien Christoph, a Melbourne-based chiropractor and naturopath, and joining us today is Ian Breakspear. Ian is a herbal and naturopathic clinician, educator and researcher with 30 years of experience in the profession. In addition to his undergraduate clinical qualifications, Ian holds a master's degree in herbal medicines from the Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Sydney. As well as clinical practice, holding numerous board positions and teaching as a senior lecturer at Torrens University, Ian finds time to actually do research. And Ian's research focuses on herbal quality, safety and efficacy as he is currently engaged in a clinical trial assessing the value and safety of olive leaf extract in type 2 diabetics. In 2021, Ian was the recipient of the Bioceuticals Integrative Medicine Award, the BEMA, for contribution to research and education. This BEMA recognises industry thought leaders, researchers and educators. And this particular award is for those who have helped raise the standard of education in the complementary medicine profession and have added to the body of evidence for natural medicines. Nominees in this category are recognised authorities in the industry. (sighs) What a CV. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure, Damien. Um, Yeah, good to be here. Thanks, Ian. Now, Ian, I've met you, we chatted, we've had a little interview when we were up in Sydney together and I loved what you were doing, but I'd love it if you could tell our audience who you are and what do you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm a naturopath and herbalist, been a a herbalist for about 30 years now and um, an educator for a number of years as well. And in the last few years, getting involved in research as well. Um, One of the projects being focusing on olive leaf extract. And, you know, for me, it's been interesting because I use olive leaf extract clinically, um, but now I'm able to to delve into it in different ways from the research perspective and really answer some of the questions I have as a clinician as well about it. Yeah, nice. Can you tell us about the history and traditional uses of olive leaf extract just as we kick this off, just to kind of understand its history? Where does it all come from? Yeah, sure. So it's a little bit hard to trace that history. It's it's like a lot of things with herbal medicine. It's quite an oral tradition and not as much documented, uh, particularly you know, a few hundred years ago. But one of the earliest accounts we do have is in the Pharmaceutical Journal from 1854, where Daniel Hanbury, who was an English botanist and pharmacognosist, was writing about a colleague's use of olive leaf to treat fever and malaria. And it seems that a lot of that came out of Spanish doctors prescribing it as an anti-fever medicine. 
particularly in the 19th century. So that then obviously spread to England and spread outwards from there. And of course, these days, we, we're looking at it for a lot of other uses as well. Yeah, it's interesting because my first usage of olive leaf extract was for viral infection. It appears that, you know, with the research and what you've been exploring, it seems that there's many more uses than just for a viral infection. Yeah, definitely. I think broadly speaking, you can kind of categorize the the activity of olive leaf into immune and infectious diseases and cardiovascular and metabolic disease care. And obviously, there's some crossover there, you know, things like its anti-inflammatory action, its antioxidant action does allow it to cross those two areas. But yeah, I'd say broadly speaking, it's that immune and infectious disease and cardiovascular and metabolic disease where the focus is. Yeah, I find it really interesting because obviously cardiometabolic diseases are very much lifestyle driven, you know. So they're very much issues surrounding the way in which we consume food, the way in which we live our life. Are we exercising enough? Are we being mindful enough? Are we taking time out? Are we being parasympathetic enough? Or are we running around, you know, a sympathetic dominant state where we're fighting and flighting all the time, you know? Obviously, when we're taking herbs or when we're taking other types of ingredients, whether it be vitamins or minerals or pharmaceutical drugs, these are to supplement a healthy diet or a healthy lifestyle. So we're saying combined with a healthy lifestyle, we can now use olive leaf extract and get an incredible result with cardiometabolic disease. That's what we're saying, yeah? Yeah, that, that's essentially it. it. It's interesting in that a lot of the research, you know, a lot of the clinical trials have obviously not involved um, a lot of dietary and lifestyle intervention in things like hypertensive patients and so forth because they've been trying to determine specifically the activity of olive leaf versus placebo, for instance. Uh, sure. But certainly yeah, yeah. from my clinical experience, yeah, you know, you've got to do the baseline, you've got to do the diet, you've got to do the lifestyle as the baseline. And then our herbal medicines are the medicines. You know, they come in and help us change existing states of of disharmony and and health issues for the better in patients along with their lifestyle and dietary change. Yeah, uh, it's a great message. And it brings us right back to our core philosophies as naturopaths um, and naturopathic clinicians that nature cures. It's a great thing to remember. And I hope everyone who's listening to this sees all the information that we're going to present today as an adjunct to a healthy lifestyle you know, or a healthier lifestyle. So I want to ask you, Ian, obviously there's heaps of different products out there and you rock on down to a health food store or you go into your local supermarket that's got a health food aisle and you see a whole heap of olive leaf extracts. Is there much of a difference between the different types of products out there? Yeah, there certainly is, Damien, and and that was the focus of my research that I completed a couple of years ago was really trying to answer that question. And the the research project started when I was engaged with a a scientific advisory committee for one of the olive companies, and we finished the the first inaugural meeting, and we were sitting around just having an informal chat, and I I was talking about olive leaf and how I use it clinically, but how I sometimes get some good results and sometimes not so good results in patients and wouldn't it be interesting if we could phytochemically profile different olive leaf extracts and just see what's going on in terms of their overall phytochemistry. 
And you know, after after that little conversation, it obviously intrigued a few people around the table, and we started to put together a, a project. And the Olive Wellness Institute was fantastic in funding it for me. And yeah, we looked at answering that question: what is the similarity, and what is the difference? And yeah, I can I could probably talk at length about that, but yeah, I think I'll open it up to you around specific questions around that now. Yeah, well. How how will the listeners, how will they be able to decide on what are the most effective or what is the best quality olive leaf extract that they can get out there? How, how can they find that sort of information out? Should they be going to your research study and finding out that or are you able to reveal that to us today? Well, I can certainly give some you know good pointers about what clinicians really should be looking for in using olive leaf extracts. So the research I did profiled five over-the-counter and five practitioner-only liquid olive leaf extracts. So we took it down to Modern Olives Laboratory, ran it through analysis, looking at a whole range of different chemicals in the plant, not just one or two, but a whole range of them. And what came out of this very clearly was that the olirupine and the hydroxytyrosol levels, both of which are considered important in a lot of the activity of olive leaf, were enormously variable between different products, but also particularly, and this was really eye-opening, between the -the over-the-counter category of products and the practitioner-only category of products. There was a massive difference. So just for example, with the olirupine level, there was a 30.4-fold variation in olirupine level from the one with the lowest to the one with the highest. So 30 times variation, which is huge. And then with looking at the -the over-the-counter versus practitioner-only category was where it really got fascinating. There was a a clear trend to the practitioner-only products having much less olirupine than the -the over-the-counter products, but higher hydroxytyrosol. And this kind of really intrigued me. So I'm trying to look for an answer for that. And what came out of that was the different forms of extracts that they were using between over-the-counter and practitioner-only. Four out of the five practitioner-only products were made from dry leaf, whereas four out of five of the -the over-the-counter were made from fresh leaf. And that makes a lot of sense when you look at olirupine. It does break down over time to hydroxytyrosol. So that kind of points to the first observation, which is you really ideally want an extract made from fresh leaf. That's the first pointer, I think. Okay. That's a good thing. So we want fresh, which is fresh is best. That's what we're saying here. And the olirupine is greater in the fresh. And we know that olirupine is the active constituent that we want the most of in our standardized extracts. That's what we're saying, yeah? Yeah, we still do want hydroxytyrosol. That is important okay. in the overall activity. And of course, the okay. other biophenols are also really important. But what was interesting in my analysis was that, yeah, there was differences between the different in products in their total biophenols and their hydroxytyrosol, but you know, there, there was only this interesting clear trend between olirupine levels in the over-the-counter versus practitioner and hydroxytyrosol compared to practitioner and OTC. That was really the key trends that came out of this. Now, obviously, there's ways in which you can extract it. I mean, you can soak it in water. We might get some stuff out. There's glycotract extracts, you know, and then there's alcohol. 
Did you find much of a difference in that space? Yeah, so what was interesting again there was that the practitioner extracts, all of them were made using ethanol and water as the extraction medium. With the -the over-the-counter products, none of them used ethanol. Uh, It was all water and glycerol. And quite clearly from the results that we see in this study, the ethanol did not confer any advantage in the extraction of the main chemistry of olive leaf. You know, it was obvious that most of it is water-soluble and certainly the water and glycerol products, the -the over-the-counter products, compared favourably and beat out the practitioner-only products in their olive rupine levels. Wow. Okay, this is good. So we're now saying fresh is best. This is really important. And that the glycerin and water outperformed the ethanol extract. Yeah, definitely. And and I think we need to remember this is specific to olive leaf. You know, it's not necessarily generalizable across all herbal medicines. Um, you know, it's going to vary from herb to herb. But, you know, this is quite clear from the research I've done on olive leaf. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Now, what are the other things that you're investigating um, olive leaf extract in its uses for? So you're doing some specific research around tolerance for diabetics or safety for diabetics. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, Associate Professor Matthew Leach from Southern Cross University and myself are collaborating on a, a small pilot clinical trial looking at the role of olive leaf in type 2 diabetics in helping to regulate their blood sugar regulation. Um, so we've actually received funding again from the Olive Wellness Institute for this and we're in the process of getting a little bit more funding hopefully just to cover some additional unexpected costs to start recruiting patients shortly. That's exciting. So where do you see that this might go? Where do you reckon this research is going to go? Or where do you hope it's going to go? Yeah, well, in terms of the diabetes, it's a real gap in, in the research at the moment. We do have some studies that have looked at, you know, obese um, males, middle-aged males and looking at metabolic syndrome there that shows some promising effects on things like lipid and glycemic regulation, but not specifically in type 2 diabetes. So that's kind of, I think, the next step, you know, is, is what we're doing is this pilot study. And if we see some interesting results from there, potentially we can scale that up eventually to a larger study to get some more conclusions information about whether it actually may have a clinical role in helping to stabilize blood sugars in diabetics. Yeah, nice. We're talking type 2 diabetes, eh? Yeah, is that right? Mm. Or type yeah, 1. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, and it, it, the potential is interesting because, as we know, with diabetics, their risk of cardiovascular disease is massively elevated. And given what we yeah. also know from other studies on olive leaf in blood, uh, sorry, blood pressure regulation, blood lipids, et cetera, that's a really interesting possibility here to use a medicine that can cover a lot of aspects of overall risk of chronic disease in diabetics potentially. Yeah, it sounds profound. Like just as you're talking, Ian, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, well, you know, if it works for type 2 diabetes, could this be something if it's safe during pregnancy? Could that be beneficial for gestational diabetes? Could this be beneficial for children? Could this be used in early type 1 insulin-dependent diabetes? Could that be possible? And these are the questions that kind of come from the research, which I think as practitioners and clinicians would love to, you know, learn this sort of stuff as 
a safer alternative to medicines and, you know, having to overuse insulin and insulin resistance and so on and so forth. Yeah, and, and certainly, you know, I've seen a, a lot of patients clinically where the insulin and the oral hypoglycemics are uh, literally saving their life, but they're not necessarily providing optimal glycemic regulation day to day. And, you know, they're, they're slightly high in their HbA1c's long term, and that increases their overall risk of chronic complications. So I, I really see a um, a significant role for obviously diet, lifestyle, and herbal and naturopathic medicine in general to fill that gap between just the, the life-saving medications that stop a patient going yeah. into a, acute hypo or hyperglycemic episodes and nothing else available to regulate and optimize things long-term to reduce adverse risks that can occur. So, yeah, I think there's a big role potentially for herbal and naturopathic medicine there. Yeah, totally. And as you said, multi-pronged. So not only are we looking at glycemic control, but there's the other chemicals, the polyphenols that are found in olive leaf extract that can contribute to antioxidant activity, anti-inflammatory activity, which is of huge benefit to the cardiometabolic system. I just want to go back a little bit because we we did touch on olirupine and hydroxytyrosol. Now, is there a particular specific ratio that we could ever be aware of as practitioners that we might look for? You know, sometimes you hear about ratios of particular active components or is it just that you want lots of olirupine and some hydroxytyrosol is fine? Is there something that we should be looking for? Mm, yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, and to my knowledge, it's not something that's been fully answered from the research yet. What we mm-hmm. do know from a number of the clinical trials is that uh, a number of the preparations that have shown good effect in things like blood pressure regulation and blood lipids and uh, reducing the risk of infectious disease and, and the level of illness of infectious diseases like colds and flus, you know, those preparations have usually been standardized for olirupine. So that has been obviously clearly important in the overall effect. We do know from other research that hydroxytyrosol is really important in particularly the, the cardiovascular, some of the anti-inflammatory effect as well, definitely antioxidant, etc. So we, we definitely want some hydroxytyrosol in the final preparation. But we also need to remember that, of course, oleorupine, it degrades over time to hydroxytyrosol, but of course, it's also going to degrade in the body to hydroxytyrosol. So over time, by ingesting a higher amount of oleorupine, you're going to get the benefits of oleorupine initially, and then as it is metabolized, you're going to get the benefits of the hydroxytyrosol that's formed as well. So quite clearly, I think optimizing within reason the oleorupine level without sacrificing the hydroxytyrosol and the, and the total biophenols is what we're really looking at. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this might be a silly question, but there could be some other people out there that are thinking the same. What is olirupine? Is it you know, it's chemical, of course, but what do you call it? Is it a yeah, so a it's, biophenol? It's is it a biophenol? Um, well, it fits into the biophenol category. It's technically a, a secoiridoid glycoside. It, it's part of what contributes that really strong bitterness to olive leaf and, and to a lesser degree olive oil as well. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, cool, because that's where I was going. So we find olirupine and hydroxytyrosol, we find that in the leaf. Do we find that in the fruit of olive trees? Yes, we do, but it's definitely less. So obviously 
olive oil being made from the fruits, you know, you're going to get a lot more of the oil-soluble components than you are from the leaf, where you're going sure. to get a lot more of the water-soluble components. So I think there's a complementary role there. You've got higher levels of things like your sterols, maslinic acid in the oil, and of course, your good monounsaturates and stuff like that in the oil that you don't have anywhere near as much of in the leaf extracts. Yeah, okay. So we can eat the whole plant. Like, why yeah, wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you eat the whole plant? <laughs> right? Sit down, put some olives in your salad, cook your fish with your olive oil, and then sip a little bit of olive leaf extract after that just to help yep. you manage the glycemic load of that. How unbelievable. <laughs> what a great plant. <laughs> I wonder who's going to fight over inv- who invented this. Was it the Greeks or the Romans? Who invented it? We'll find out, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you might know. Where did it, where's the first olive tree from? Oh, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that, but I was reading an interesting study the other day that was basically suggesting that cultivation of the olive tree has been going on for thousands of years, that it's not a new thing, that we've been intentionally cultivating the olive tree for longer than what we had previously expected, much longer. So, yeah, pretty interesting. It's a, such a central a central medicine, a central food, you know, in that Mediterranean area for, for so long. Yeah. Now, when we come back to dosage, uh, I think this this is important because obviously we're encouraging our practitioners who are listening to this to be aware of the power of olive leaf extract and how it could be used in practice. And of course, we're using it for viral stuff, but now we might be considering it for glycemic control and metabolic cardiometabolic issues. So is there a dose-dependent association for efficacy? Yeah, so the the studies that have been done, the clinical trials so far, have obviously used lots of different dosages. But the the theme that we're really seeing is that, for instance, Debock in 2013, looking at insulin sensitivity and pancreatic beta cell function, the preparation they used in that that had some good results was 51 milligrams of olirubine daily. Then there was another study in 2019 looking at sick days and duration of upper respiratory infections in high school athletes that used 100 milligrams of olirubine daily. And for the cardiovascular effects, there's been a number of studies ranging between uh, 100 to 136 milligrams of olirubine daily. So it seems particularly for the cardiovascular effects, we're looking at higher levels of olirubine than some of the other effects that we would apply olive leaf for as well. And I, I think particularly what was really astounding from my research is that when I looked at the maximum recommended dose of all of the practitioner products that I studied, none of them got anywhere near the 100 milligrams. In fact, none of them even reached the 51 milligrams of olorupine per day at their maximum recommended dose. Oh, wow. So in looking at the practitioner-only products that are out there for the most part at the moment, none of them at their maximum suggested dose got to 51 milligrams of olorupine. Yeah, one of them got close, which was interestingly the the one practitioner product that was made from fresh leaf, the only one. But the rest okay. were way under fifty one milligrams. Um, and you know, what was intriguing for me as well is the particular product that I was using at the time with my patients turned out to have the lowest levels of olorupine of all of them. So you know, very informative to me clinically as well. This is ideally what we want with the research that really informs our clinical practice. Or 
Yeah, okay. So it appears to me that we want to be looking for a product that's going to have in its dosage or at least its maximum dose over the course of a day at least 100 milligrams. That's what we're going to really want, isn't it? Yeah, generally speaking. And uh, yeah, the fascinating thing that I found as well is that all of the over-the-counter products declared on the label how much olirupine or hydroxytyrosol or both was in there per, per mil or per dose. None of the practitioner products declared it. So none of the practitioner liquids gave any indication of what the olirupine level was, which to me was a little disappointing because, you know, as as a clinician, you know, I'm trained to be able to make some decisions around the dosing that I need for the patient, you know, prescribe according to the evidence that's out there. But the information on the label of the practitioner products didn't allow me to achieve that because there was no declaration of olirupine or hydroxytyrosol or anything. Far out. So let's say, for example, you work out that your supplement has less olirupine than what you want. Is there a problem with taking too much? I mean, if you take too much glycerol, is that a diarrhea issue? Is that what we're talking about here? Or what could happen if you take too much of it? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And again, we, we, we don't have a lot of solid data on that, but we do know that Obviously, if you're looking at an alcohol-based extract, you know, if you're looking at these practitioner products that are made with alcohol, you're going to have to double or triple the dosage, the maximum dosage recommended, which, of course, means double or triple the ethanol that the patient's consuming as well. Yeah. And that's... You know, that could get a little problematic sometimes, as we know. With glycerol, I've certainly had some patients that react with a bit of mild nausea when they have really large amounts of glycerol. But then we also do need to, to realize that really high doses of olirupine that are too high for the patient can itself cause nausea as well. You know, it is okay. a strong gastric stimulant. So that effect in sensitive patients or when you're using too high a dosage for the individual can also result in nausea. So that needs to be considered. And again, I think part of why we need to know how much olirupine is in these practitioner products to make that decision. Yeah. Do we know what a, a maximum amount would be per day that someone could have? Like is it 300 milligrams? Is it 500 milligrams of olirupine? Or is it that going to be a bit dependent on the individual? Yeah. So... As far as I know, there hasn't been specific upper limits kind of found in the research of olirupine dosing. Um, if you look at the European Medicines Agency monograph on olive leaf, they, you know, in their section on overdose, they basically just say no case of overdose has been reported. So, okay. yeah, we really just don't know for sure on that one. But certainly from my clinical okay. experience, Yes, certainly high doses in some people that you know have sensitive stomachs can be a little bit dicey, and so then you just dial it back, see how the patient's going. You know, if they're getting the responses in blood pressure or whatever you're prescribing for, even if it's at the lower dose, fantastic because we know some patients respond really well to low doses of things, some don't. So yeah, you just got to do it based on the individual. I think. Yeah, nice. Okay, it just brings it back to what it is that we do. And But good thing to remember, you know, like if, if you've got to increase your, your dose of the ethanol extract, be careful. Don't go driving um, if you've been taking your <laughs> yep. olive leaf extract. You'd hate yep. to get pulled over and you blow, you know, 0.05 or something and the police officer says, you've been drinking. You say, no, no, I've just been drinking olive leaf extract. That might not be good. 
Could be, yeah. That was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> For those people who didn't laugh, that was my attempt at a joke. Bad joke. Now, is it always safe to use this stuff? Like, do we need to be careful about kids? Like, do we have safety data for children? Yeah, we don't. We don't have safety data for children. We don't have safety data for pregnant women or breastfeeding women either. So, again, the okay. European Medicines Agency, their, their monograph basically states that um, for fertility, pregnancy and lactation, safety during pregnancy and lactation has not been established. In the absence of mm-hmm. sufficient data, the use in pregnancy and lactation is not recommended. So, they're, they're erring on the side of caution. There's no reason to suspect phytochemically that it would be a problem, but, you know, understandably they're erring on the side of caution. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, worth just noting. I mean, obviously, again, you know, it's within our powers or within our skill set to use clinical judgment in these sorts of situations and obviously be careful and be mindful of what it is but and of course we could be chasing the optimal dose but it doesn't hurt for people to take a smaller amount because they will still get some benefit from it it may just not be what's clinically effective for say diabetes or six day sick days with athletes or cardiometabolic function you know it still might be virally beneficial for some people so but of course caution uh, with kids and pregnancy breastfeeding is important um anything has there been anything done with cancer there's so much cancer at the moment and people are taking people are hanging on to dear life, hoping that there's going to be an answer. Um, if they were looking to take, you know, olive leaf extract with their cancer treatments, um, would this be okay? Yeah, and again, that's an, an interesting question that needs investigation because we just don't really have a lot of data on that. There's one study from 2013 where they were using olive leaf extracts for oral mucositis in patients undergoing chemotherapy uh, for cancer. So they were uh-huh. comparing the olive leaf extract as a mouth rinse with benzodiazepine and normal saline, and it had really good results in terms of reducing the oral mucositis assessment scale and, and et cetera. And the, the inflammatory mediators as well were, were significantly decreased, like TNF alpha levels were decreased in the saliva. So, you know, that, that's a really good sign there. But obviously, we do need to consider the potential, particularly for oral usage, um, oral ingestion, what drug interactions uh, are we going to have, particularly in something as critical as, as cancer therapy. So we just don't have the answer for that. It really needs exploration at this stage. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of research that can be done um, Mm. across the board for all medicines. And this is why we do training as practitioners to be safe for our patients. And so use your clinical judgment, be be mindful with how you're prescribing it. But it comes from a herb and we're not just focusing on one extract of a nutrient or a chemical. We're not just doing oliuropine, we're doing an extract of whole like everything that's in the leaf so mm. it's for me it sounds like it's going to be a bit safer you know it's not yeah. just a, a, a potentially drug. Yeah. yeah there's there's no particular reason when we look at the phytochemistry to suspect a real issue with it but you know we we just need to to really do more research that's for sure and i, I think th- this what you said earlier about you know, using professional judgment, the practitioner using their judgment. You know, th- this is what clinical practice is about. We we need to use our best judgment with the knowledge that we've got at the, available at the time, and realise yeah. that sometimes knowledge evolves. You know, when I first started practice, 
nobody knew about St. John's Wort's interaction with various conventional medications. You know, so I reflect on how I prescribed St. John's Wort in my first few years of practice, thinking, you know, there's probably times I prescribed it in patients in combination with pharmaceutical medications, and that led to increased breakdown. But we just didn't know at the time. And of course, we need to stay up to date. That's that's how we improve, and that's how we improve patient safety. Yeah, yeah, that's a great call. I think we've all done that. Do you find that using um, olive leaf extract with other herbs or nutrients might potentiate its use? You know, that it, it pairs really well with some things over other things. I mean, you, what else do you use olive leaf extract with, you know, and for what things are you using it with other than diabetes? Yep. So I, I suppose my main clinical usage personally is in patients with hypertension and just generally increased cardiovascular risk factors across the board. So in those patients, I'm very commonly prescribing it with Crataegus monogyna, the, the Hawthorne. That seems particularly in blood pressure to work well with olive leaf in my experience. And sure. then, uh, yeah, then the rest of it comes down to very much individualized medicine. You know, some patients... With hypertension, you know, it's very stress-related. So we're going to be using adaptogens and nervines and so forth, as well as obviously counselling and, you know, meditation and stuff like that. You know, for other people, it may be peripheral vascular resistance is really high, so we need more of a peripheral vasodilator medicine. So, you know, I think then pairing it according to the individual need and our assessment of that need is is really important. Yeah. Really good. Some great advice there for everybody um, who's been listening to this today. Ian, before we finish up, is there anything that we haven't covered today that you'd like to touch on so that our listeners can race out and order more olive leaf extract? <laughs> yep. So I, I think the, the key things that really stood out for me, both in terms of my clinical experience and this research, was that the the a lot of the practitioner products were were not optimal in terms of their olirupine levels etc yeah. that they didn't have that label declaration that allows us to make an appropriate assessment for what is the right dose for that patient and that we ideally want to change that long term um, that we don't in the case of olive leaf, need ethanol as an extraction medium. You know, it's not conferring any advantage in the extraction. Um, and that, you know, we, we need to ask for that traceability, accountability, and that quantitative declaration from the companies that are, are supplying us with our medicines. Such a great summary. I couldn't have done it better myself, Ian. Great <laughs> summary. Well done. <laughs> really great. And I just want to thank you for joining me, Ian. I know we worked really hard to try and get you to get you on this podcast. And I know all the listeners of FX Medicine will have thoroughly enjoyed your knowledge and be uh, be and so impressed with what you do know about this particular ingredient. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. And um, we should uh, get together and talk about olive oil one day again as well. Yes, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, there's definitely not a no from me. I love olive leaf <laughs> oil. I'm oh, sorry, olive oil. Um, hey, thanks everyone for listening today. Uh, don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Damien Christoph. Thanks for joining us. And remember to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure that you never miss an episode. And to get more information on Ian, go to ianbreakspear.com.au and you can find him on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter using the handle Ian Breakspear or Ian underscore Breakspear. Thanks again, everybody. Mm-hmm.
This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.